Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. A significant achievement for DOD's Space Development Agency. Last month, SDA demonstrated it could use a communication system called Link 16 between ground stations and its new network of low-Earth orbiting satellites. It's the first time the ubiquitous military communication protocol has ever been used in space. For more on why that matters and what it means, we're joined now by Jennifer Elzey, the Director for Strategic Engagement at SDA. And Jennifer, thanks very much for joining us. And, and I think uh, to set this up for to help folks understand why this is such a big deal, it'd be useful to understand a little bit what Link 16 is for people who have not worked in military communications. Can you set us up that way and, and tell us you know, what this communications protocol is used for and why you guys decided to prioritize it as part of your transport architecture? You bet. Thanks, Jared. So Link 16 is a specific military communication channel over radio specifically that allows tactical messages to be delivered to warfighters around the world. And um, the importance of it right now is that from space, we can expand its deliverable location out to the edge of where a warfighter might be. Previously, Link 16, which has been around for several decades, was limited to an area where it had to be about two or 300 nautical miles from another Link 16 radio. And now with the potential use from space, we've expanded that footprint significantly where a warfighter can be almost anywhere in the world and have Link 16 military data messages delivered to them wherever they are. Right, because I think the main limitation was also limited to line of sight, right? But if you're in space, line of sight is potentially everywhere. That's exactly right. We historically have fought wars primarily using within line of sight. And now with the opportunity to deliver data to a warfighter from space through the proliferated warfighter space architecture, which is what my agency is building, we do have beyond line of sight capability for Link 16 tactical messages. And that's one of the areas that the PWSA, our architecture can deliver. But in the future, we will test and demonstrate other channels through which we can also deliver data. But Link 16 is a very significant one because of its military history. Right. And and can what can you share with us about what this particular set of tests actually demonstrated and, and whatever the test scenario, if whatever you can share on that would be would be helpful. This test took place a couple of days before Thanksgiving, which was very exciting. Uh, we tested three different occasions with three different satellites in low Earth orbit. So the satellites are about a thousand kilometers from the Earth as part of our tranche zero, which is our demonstration generation of the PWSA. And the satellites that we used for testing have Link 16 radios aboard. And they were connecting to Link 16 radios in an international partners territory on the ground. Uh, Our international partners have been very helpful and forward leaning about this Link 16 testing. And so we had to go through an uh, US government waiver process and also an international approval process to be allowed to do this testing uh, in the territory of a foreign partner. And the Link 16 radios from space were able to both actively and passively connect to Link 16 radios on the ground and pass messages each way. And that active and passive is important because active connection means that there's sort of a digital handshake. Passive connection means that it can also connect even without that digital handshake. If it has the appropriate authorities for the network, it's able to connect uh, without as much uh, process as as a satellite might move overhead. 
What's the connection that, the, or, or how does SDA think about the connection of this new capability to the broader joint all domain command and control effort? Or I guess now, since you're working with the international partners, combined joint all domain command and control. Yes, it's it's a real possibility. So so joint all domain command and control, or JADC two is the uh, is the pop term for it, uh, is really about connecting any sensor in the world or in space potentially to any shooter anywhere in the world. There's a lot of quote unquote magic that's involved with making something like that happen. And this Link 16 test is a real demonstration that that magic, if you will, is possible. So um, allowing military messages to be passed from space to ground does enable the idea, at least, of any sensor anywhere in the world being able to pick up whatever data it is that we need and move it potentially through space to wherever the warfighter who needs to use or apply that data, wherever they're located, and then send it down to the ground via Link 16, or like I said, in the future, potentially other channels. Um, That's a very real step toward enabling JADC2 um, versus a lot of discussion and a lot of efforts that have been underway. But this is a demonstration that shows us one of the pieces that's going to make JADC2 possible. And one thing we we haven't really emphasized yet is it seems like another important part of this is this is a a generation of satellite communication that doesn't require the end user to have a big satellite terminal, right? I mean, we're, we're talking really about something in a form factor of a handheld radio, right? That is completely mobile. Is that about right? Yeah, that's an excellent point and a really important part of this discussion. From the outset, the Space Development Agency was committed to building toward what already existed. We did not want to force the military services to re-equip based on what it was that we were going to fly in space. Certainly, military communication channels will move forward over time. There may be other receivers or other channels in the future, but we didn't want to be the forcing function for that at SDA. So we built to what existed. And there are, you're right, very relatively small and transportable radios that can receive Link 16 messages as small as something that someone can hold in their hand or can be mounted to a vehicle, which again, with that beyond line of sight capability is very important because if you are at the edge, the tactical edge in in some sort of war fighting scenario, you don't wanna have to be bringing uh, new or different equipment that warfighters might not be trained on, and you don't want a huge footprint to have to drag with you. Makes sense. So what can you share with us about what needs to happen still before this is in real operational use and what's next in the test plan? Yeah, so this is a very early demo. This is, like I mentioned, the PWSA's Tranche Zero, which is a demonstration generation. So the satellites that are on orbit today that perform these tests are not operational satellites. They're really for demonstration. But SDA employs a spiral development model, which means that every two years we field a new generation of capabilities in space, as well as the accompanying ground support, whatever's needed. Uh, So beginning at the end of 2024, so really just about a year from now, we will begin launching our first operational generation. And that will be outfitted with Link 16 radios, as well as optical links, which is using a whole separate frequency, uh, the light spectrum to move data within space and potentially to the ground, um, in addition to this Link 16 capability. So beginning in 2024, we will start flying our first operational generation and then 
2025, we really will achieve probably initial warfighting capability, uh, which is what we call our ability to support the warfighter in an active fight if necessary, uh, sometime around the end of 2025. Yeah, and I just want to give folks a sense of how quickly SDA is moving in comparison to most military acquisition projects. I think that tranche one that you mentioned, you said it's going to be flying in 2024. I think the contract awards were just a couple months ago for that. Am I remembering that timeline right? The contract awards typically, so the ones for these radios that demonstrated Link 16 just a week ago, those contracts were let in 2020. Uh, the contracts for Tranche 1 were let in about 2022 timeframe. And then we right now are buying yet another generation called Tranche 2 that will begin flying in 2026. So we are moving, you're right, at, at the speed of light, if you will. Uh, and our agency as a whole stood up in 2019. So we've gone in under five years, we've gone from nothing, you know, paper to uh, demonstration on orbit, we're moving toward operational capabilities on orbit, and then yet another uh, build out and replenishment generation for tranche two in 2026. So uh, the agency is moving very, very quickly to deliver these capabilities to our warfighters. Jennifer Elzey is the Director for Strategic Engagement at the Space Development Agency. You can find more information and this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. 
Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote. 
which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture, because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. 
And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's gotta be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.